0: Hi guys, it's Alistair McKenzie here, sports physiotherapist from the UK, and welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we have part three with Dr. Tim McGrath. Tim is an Australian sports physiotherapist with over 20 years of clinical and research experience. He is the founder of Elite High Performance Rehab in Canberra and the director of Australian based company Pitch Ready. In parts one and two, Tim discussed his PhD research on outcome measures following ACL reconstruction. He also shared some of his perspectives on constructing an ACL rehab program, which provides some great clinical insight and tips to inform your practice. In part three, Tim is going to discuss a more recent paper on the determinants of hamstring fascicle length in professional rugby league athletes, which was published in 2020 in the Journal of Science and Medicine in Sport. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vull Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy to use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Alistair McKenzie, and here is today's episode with Tim McGrath. Tim, thanks for coming back on for your final part of your series.
1: No worries. Thanks
0: for having me. On today's episode, we're going to move away from ACL rehab and on to another hot topic in sports science and medicine, which is all things hamstrings. So this paper you published a couple of years ago and you looked to establish the determinants of hamstring fascicle length in pro rugby league players. So what was the origin behind this paper?
1: I was, I was, I was working in, uh, in, in professional AFL um, at the time and... And the, the the club that I was at had a you know had a bit of a hamstring problem, and um, the high performance manager a guy by the name of Darren Burgess um, sort of in an effort to try and sort of get get some um, some insights in, into why why it was happening was um, was to bring in a guy named Ryan Timmons who did his PhD in, uh, in fascicle lengths. and. And the first that I, I tell Timo about this all the time, the first time I heard about it that someone was going to come in with an ultrasound ma- machine and start measuring things, I was horrified because I'd sort of come from the uh the, the real time ultrasound of multifidus and transverse abdominis and all that sort of stuff. And I was I was a bit scarred by that experience. So as soon as I heard there was a guy with an ultrasound coming in, I was I was very um very negative about the whole thing. But um but he his his stuff is he's brilliant. Um you'll see, um, you know, in sport all the time, there are people that can have speed spikes, people that don't have speed spikes, people who are strong, people who are weak um, and not necessarily holding up very well with the ones that then kind of then do a hamstring in football. And um, as where his stuff did hold up really well, people who had short fascicles, you know, they probably needed one of those other little factors to come in on top. But people that had, you know, long fascicles weren't the ones that were doing weren't doing hamstring. So um, through through his kind of work it sort of held up reasonably well that it was an important thing to look at. And um, then it became about chasing fascicle lengths. So what what's you know in terms of dosage, what's a what's a good dose, is, is it more is better, is you know, is there a sort of a minimum threshold? Um, a lot of those things and you know and Nordics tend to feature pretty um, prominently within that. Um, and then you got groups that then talk about we don't need Nordics and you know, there's other ways of sort of changing the strength. There was all these sort of competing opinions as to what actually kind of helped chase, chase fascicle lengths. Um, and, and never really got resolution, you know, when I was at that place, but then, um, uh, started up as a medical director at a, uh, NRL rugby league club. And, and I was pretty keen to then sort of use that as a, as a, as an opportunity to sort of try and chase some of these qualities, so we set it, we set up the project where um, we capture just about every metric you can in professional sport, everything from from naughty count to injury history, you know, to age, to um, uh, speed, you know, GPS derived speed loads over you know um, over the preceding sort of two months, all the way through the um, through the season, um, and and got their fascicles at repeat. Um, periods of the of the time so it was it was a good project to do because i'd sort of learned a lot of the technical parts from the phd in terms of setting up a project that meant you could sort of capture data along the way without having making it too onerous on the on the program but then still having pretty good pretty good rigor at the time
0: yeah ryan has published a lot of work around hamstrings and and he worked closely with david opar who was on the main show with Ben quite a while ago, but he, he discussed a lot of his literature around you know, the quadrant of doom and stuff like that. So I uh, really recommend if anyone's interested to go back and find that episode and have a listen. But back to this paper, you had 33 uh, elite rugby league players, all male, um, that were tested during pre and in-season time points. Um, and we know things like eccentric strength is prominent in the literature, but what were the determinants that that you observed with regards to changes in fascicle length?
1: Yeah, I think I think that was key. I think that was key is that um, uh, eccentric strength features very prominently when people think about you know fascicle length and hand, hamstring prevention and all that sort of stuff. But like speed features as prominently, if not more prominently than um, than than eccentric strength. So both of them are uh, that showed up to be very important. Like the both of them did, but. Um, it was, you know, and the other part with the speed was everyone talks about 90% thresholds, you know, chronic exposure above. And we looked at the 90%, you know, how much speed exposure they had chronically over 90% and it didn't even come up as a strong um, correlation at all. It was all about 80%. So, um, you know, for, for since that point, I've been very comfortable not having to chase that, you know, magic 90% sort of mark, as long as they're getting a chronic exposure of Of high-speed running, then, then for me, that's that's the most important part. Um, From a strength perspective, we looked at break. You know, again, with all the biomechanical aspects, we had break angles, everything from 20 degrees thigh angle velocity all the way through to peak thigh angle velocity. So we were trying to look at, you know, does does break angle correlate because that's been talked about over time, where you know you end up having to have people have to be in a really low position when they do it and being really strict with you know, hip position, tucking your butt in and all that sort of stuff. Um and really it was just about the time under load. So it was peak it was peak loads. Um and just the time under load was important. Not not the, the brake angle didn't didn't kind of show up as an important um as an important factor.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And for me reading the paper, that was one of the key takeaways is that time under tension, uh during or or closing in on a super maximal contraction may produce more may have the potential to produce a more potent stimulus to drive adaptation yeah. rather than the athletes breaking angle which is discussed a lot in the literature um, which we know correlates probably correlates to when near near peak force happens but that's also influenced by uh contextual factors like intent and effort and so on and fatigue but from your study then, really, it's just saying that it's really important to consider time under tension as a, as a key variable when, when prescribing Absolutely. Nordics.
1: Absolutely. That, that, that's my interpretation of it, because certainly people who had the, the longer the, their ability to sustain that time from sort of 20 degrees. So 20 degrees is you're starting to move forward and then you're just starting to fall. So that's generally 20 degrees per second. So the longer the time period was between that to peak thigh angular velocity, um the longer that was the that the the stronger the correlation with long fascicle lengths was
0: yeah and it's interesting here and you talk about 80% high speed exposure um is there there is a bit of a debate whether it's 80 or 90% exposure is to get a minimal dose and obviously if you can if it can be done at 80% then you're probably creating a safer environment for your athletes especially during uh condensed fixtures and and high intensity training sessions so that's an easy, an interesting finding that can be applied from both injury prevention and mm. athletic development. But what what minimal dosage do you recommend for the Nordic if you're considering time under tension as well?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and what was inter- another good sort of in, inadvertent part about it was because we got a a time series, so we got we didn't just get one moment in time. We had repeat sort of measures, and and Timo, um, you know, he, he collects data from everywhere, from AFL to English Premier League to everywhere. so he's got a good sample. So within this group um they had the as a as the 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 group average if you like was the longest of all the um groups that he had so so in terms of the volume we were sort of doing because we had debates in the AFL about you know is three reps within a week versus nine reps you know all that sort of stuff Th- this group was was tolerating you know two sets of 5 double leg and one set of 3 single leg twice a week so they were getting tolerating volumes within the 20 to 25 range depending on whether it was a short turnaround or a long turnaround. Um, and and th- this cohort, not only, the, the classic thing was that typically they decline once they get into in season. So their fac- fascicles are the longest at the sort of the end of the preseason period. And then decline as it gets into the in season period is where this group increased as they, as they went, which is sort of bucked a bit of the trend on the data that, that he had and, and had the highest sort of group average um, fascicle length across the board. So I think it's, um it's useful in the sense that it, it means then that it's it, it's a good representative group as well as to what correlates to it rather than it just being this was a really poor group you know compared to the other sort of groups that he'd measured
0: yeah and i think that brings us nicely on really to like a uh, reflection of the the methods of this study so were there any limitations or anything you would do differently if you could reproduce this study I think it was
1: I was pretty happy with it in terms of the, the outputs like that, that you could derive from from that group. Like you know, like I said, um multiple time periods, any of those sorts of things can sort of help um solidify the strength of your data. But um in terms of the time period that we allocated and the you know the, the yeah the, the how robust the study was, it was um like I feel like it's it's helped me in terms of the programming aspects and the things that I feel feel are important you know in terms of hamstring prevention
0: yeah that's always good to have that much confidence and i agree i think it's a pretty robust study um which like you said increases the confidence in the findings and the and the cl- clinical implications of that so yeah if we were just to conclude this study with some key points um for the listeners what what kind of things would you go for
1: uh don't just prioritize strength only like you know speed exposure and and keeping you know keeping an athlete. Uh, getting repeat, you know, keeping them in training as much as humanly possible because I think there's a definitely a level of resilience that comes in with that is where, you know, um, some of the, I feel like the misinterpretations of load management over the years was as soon as someone has a any kind of a spike, um, you know, then the, they're going to hurt themselves and to back off. Like that's, I don't think that's how the people who derived that work wanted it to be interpreted, but I think that that's how it got, um, uh, you know, received by by different sort of clinician so um, as we're from mine is it's about keeping them in training. So rather than getting spooked by things, it's about the ability to sort of keep them in there. And and for me, it was very much about like running exposure is is really important. And like you were saying before, is that the strength capacity is really about tissue tolerance. And having good strength tolerance means that you can confidently then, you know, keep them within drills, and you can help build up that kind of resilience. And it's probably the two of them together which um, uh, you know, ad- address a lot of those big rocks in terms of your prevention is where programs that I've known where people do get easily spoke, uh, spooked, and you know someone reports a bit of tightness and then they pull them out of the drill. I think that's potentially, you know, resting them completely is does uh can do them a disservice. I reckon.
0: Yeah, and just quickly, um, with regards to returning from running from injury from a hamstring strain, um, I'm not sure what classification system you use out there, but we used mainly use the BAMIC here, the British Athletics Muscle Injury Classification. Um, so say you have like a standard proximal bicep femoris injury, like a 1A or 2, 2A myofascial-based yep. injury compared to one with tendon involvement. Yeah. When would you start running them again and, and what are your thoughts
1: around that? So so I think it's um, it was interesting when you, when you work in AFL in Australia versus the rugby codes, they're quite differently derived in terms of the conditioning program. So the the rugby codes place a really high priority on strength. Um, the the AFL codes are a bit more aligned with a lot of your other sort of football codes that um, they prioritize running first. And and I think that there's merit in both of them. So um, tenderness-based injuries, um, the, the rugby model I think tends to work really well where you try and put a high priority on um, getting as much strength into them before you start trying to um, expose them to high speed, as opposed to so. So I tend to go with more the rugby model in in that respect, um, as where in the in the AFL model where which is as soon as they're walking pain free, um, start getting to do a walk jog, let them self select the speed, don't really dictate things too much. So if it's more of a muscle based injury, then I, I will sort of uh, let it flow like that. As where if it's a tendon based one. I might still let them get into low level low level running but really want some evidence of you know kind of not necessarily super maximal and it depends on whether it's a really high grade injury and a chronic injury or that sort of stuff but but definitely probably prioritizing the strength aspect a little bit more before I start getting too carried away with high speed running just because I've been you know they that's where those tendon ones burn you is they look pretty good at low level and then you start trying to hit high velocity and and you know that's when it unravels really easily
0: yeah fantastic and and that's pretty much bringing us to a conclusion for your series tim so thanks again for coming on the show i've really enjoyed we've covered a lot of different areas on acl rehab and and hamstring strain so thanks for your time i'm really looking forward to staying up to date with your research and hopefully get you back on when
1: when uh that gets published again easy easy yeah and then hopefully hopefully borders hopefully borders up soon and then i can get back over that way sometime soon
0: i'd like to say a big thank you to tim mcgrath for coming on the show um providing us with a lot of great research and clinical experience all wrapped into one so i hope you really enjoyed his episodes and his series um, to find out more from Inform Performance content, head to informperformance.com, where you can find all our episodes as well as articles and courses from top professionals in performance and sports medicine. And don't forget, you can find us on social media at Inform Performance on Instagram or at Inform Pod on Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show of Research Unpacked. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.